Hello and welcome to Fly With Your Shadow, the podcast all about music, mental health and illness, and the mess that the COVID pandemic has made of it all. My name is Jeff Robson and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Today's show is one that I'm really excited to bring you as I recently got to talk to someone I've admired for a long time for his music, art, writing, and honesty. I'm Jim White. I've been a singer-songwriter for I like in in that music business for, you know, since about 1996, I guess. Jim White is a fascinating character who has lived an almost unbelievable life up to this point. It's his wildly original music that got my attention and has brought him the most renown and acclaim. But Jim didn't come seriously to music until much later in life than most performers. Before a rather serendipitous start to his musical career, he was a professional model, professional surfer, New York University film student, and a New York City taxi driver. During those early years, Jim was deeply depressed and suicidal and struggling with some really dark demons in his soul. Eventually, as you'll hear in the interview, Jim retreated to his sister's house in Florida where he withdrew from society almost entirely and started writing his way through his depression by creating the dark, strange, almost mythological songs that he's become known for. Through some rather magical circumstances, an early tape of those songs found its way into the hands of David Byrne, the legendary former leader of the Talking Heads. Byrne is one of the most influential artists of his generation, and he guided Jim to a record deal which got him signed before ever performing on stage and led him to jump in with both feet, opening for David Byrne on some huge stages. Magical coincidences kind of follow Jim around. His career has received major boosts when his music was included in the hugely successful show Breaking Bad and the subsequent film El Camino. Those projects and another film called Home Fries were headed up by Jim's former classmate Vince Gilligan, who got his big break working on another big TV series, The X-Files. Jim has now released eight full-length albums of his own, as well as a couple of EPs and numerous collaborations with other artists. His 2004 album, Drill a Hole in That Substrate and Tell Me What You See, includes contributions from Susie Ungerleiter, who appeared on episode 16 of this show. Not a world beyond the world we never will reach Cause you can't get to heaven on no borrowed ways A further connection, he's currently producing an album for Ben Delacour, who was my guest on episode 5. Jim is a wildly entertaining storyteller, so although Jim's life has not been easy, this is a really fun and revealing conversation with the multi-talented Jim White. But it's shining bright like a diamond ring, whispering you can do anything, yeah, yeah. You've talked about uh, coming to music a little bit later in life. You said you were 40 and, and had never played a gig when you, when you came to music. So why did it take you that long? And, and sort of what, can you tell me a bit about, about the time before that? Cause you've had, you've had quite a storied, uh, a life of different adventures. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I didn't, well, I started playing guitar when I was 18. So that's late. Um, and I was writing sort of imploded folk songs in the eighties, which, you know, I, I play them for people and, and they, 
Well, one, I, I was on a cruise ship once. Uh, I had a, got, got a job on a cruise ship. Uh, I was a model, and they, you know, they sometimes they shoot on cruise ships. And I was just, I really wanted to just leap over the edge because it was just mainstream America and all its banality. Uh, but there was this real pretty uh, uh, Norwegian lady working on the thing, and I, I just, I talked to her every day and flirt with her and. Finally, she invited me to her cabin and said, oh, you should bring your guitar. And I, I so I brought my guitar and I sang her a couple songs about murder. And and uh, and uh, after after three songs, she said, your music, it sounds like many shortwave radios playing all at once. <laughs> and uh, and then she said, I think I need to get to bed now. <laughs> Go to sleep. You know, it's. So the, there wasn't there wasn't a real market for for what I was doing and and you know when I would play my music for people they were not enthusiastic about it so I just figured okay it's 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 something that I do for solace it's an avocation and and it it will you know it's something I can do in my quiet time and you know the story of how it ended up landing in David Byrne's hand is you know it, that's that's been documented that's part of a novel that I just wrote um, but. Uh, you know, it was a very improbable series of events, as as improbable as as any in the music industry. Of you know, someone someone ending up opening for David Byrne in front of four thousand people a year later, which I did, much much to my astonishment. And it was kind of good that I didn't work my way up because I didn't really understand what it was. So I didn't have any sort of like attached emotional charge to it. It was just like. Oh, this weird, surreal experience is continuing. I'm on stage now in Paris, France, with thousands of people cheering for me. Well, okay. And I got the hat. You know, when I first started, I had a cowboy hat. I got the hat as a sort of a thing for people to look at. So that's like, I never wore a cowboy hat before in my life before that. But uh, I, I was thinking about it, and I thought, man, if all are looking at me it is going to make me comfortable because I, I don't like being in front of people i don't like being a public person um and i thought i did something for that and i i was mannequin and on the mannequin there was a hat like this cowboy hat and it said cat not for sale do not remove and i said well <laughs> okay <laughs> and I, I put the hat on and walked up front and said how much for the hat and they said two dollars and that's the hat that kind of that i wore all over the world for the next four years. And I just have some advice for you fledgling musicians. Don't get a giant hat to, to, to wear while you're it's biggest pain in the ass trying to carry it with you wherever you go. It's like walking around with a Christmas tree. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of your music or, or a lot of the writing, I guess, really started when you were, you were driving a cab in New York and, and you've talked a lot about how, you kind of worked through some some hard times with that cab or driving that cab talking to people can can you tell me a bit about that period and what what was going on with you and yeah i broke up with my cab uh, <laughs> no i was you know i i took the job driving the cab to pay my way through film school cuz i realized uh, yeah i was i was what i was 28 years old and and when i got to to new york the second time and i traveled all around and i kind of like I'd seen I'd seen where my potential lay in terms of all all other things other than you know, academic study. So I figured, okay, let me let me try academic study. And so I I, I walked over to NYU, uh, which is you know the best 
film school in America, and and just a series of and this happens to me a lot. A series of quite astonishing coincidences happened, and suddenly I had a scholarship to NYU. Um, and it's not something that you can consciously do. Um, it, there's a, there was a sort of a, a, a little cloud of grace that used to just descend around me at times, and and. And it's important for people to understand that if, if a cloud of grace descends about around you in one phase of your life, the next phase, a cloud of doom is going to uh, descend around you. You have to pay for the grace. It's like, like you know, expensive dinner. You're going to have to wash dishes at the end of the night. Um, so I, I ended up washing dishes for about 10 years um, as, as my psychological health um, kind of collapsed. And by the end of it, I was, uh, I'd graduated from film school. I had finished making my thesis film. It won a bunch of awards in the, in the NYU film festival. And unlike, it's kind of like what I was talking about with all those artists that don't know what to do next after they make a beautiful record. Um, I'd made this film that was well received and won all the awards in the festival and then I was driving a cab the next week and I didn't know what to do. All my other friends, they were like parlaying it into, to, you know, movie deals and co-writing scripts with people. And I was back in the taxi because I just lacked that skill, the, the, skill, the, the skill of parlaying success into, uh, you know, a monetized form. So I, I was desperate and, and there's no romantic aspect to driving a cab in New York City. It's it it is a very dangerous job, and it's uh, uh, you know people spit on you, people rob you, um, people cheat you all the time. You know, there's a lot of good people, and there's a lot of interesting stuff, but it, it really starts to wear you down. It's a 12-hour shift, so if you can imagine, the first night I did it, I drove nine hours, and I I, I just collapsed. I couldn't, I can't imagine driving 12 hours. So you work your way up to a 12-hour shift, and that's with a two-hour wait period. So it's a 14-hour day before the commute. An hour there, hour back. So you're talking about a 16-hour day of white knuckle driving in traffic, where if you if you have a wreck, you're dead. You know, if you lose your you lose your livelihood, and um, so it was incredibly stressful and and a difficult job and kind of minimum wage when you really tallied up all the hours. So working a minimum wage job in a high stress city, I mean, life insurance companies would not give policies to cab drivers because it was too high a risk of a payout. So that's, that's how dangerous it was. I, I knew three different drivers who were killed, um, during my 12 year tenure driving a cab, um, nice people shot in the head. One of them, you know, one of, one of them taken out and shot with a shotgun in the stomach. Yeah. It's just terrible, terrible stuff. It's like, you know, drive, driving a taxi in Beirut or something or Chechnya. Um, so, it got worse and worse and worse, and I started kind of psychologically dissolving. Um, and my health, you know, when your when your when your psychological health goes, your physical health often follows. Um, and and so my mental health was rapidly going down the tubes, and I was what they what they call suicidal ideation. I was having a lot of suicidal ideation. I was trying to figure out a way to to disappear because I just didn't feel like I belonged on this planet. And and as I got further and further down just everything just my body shut down and i got sick and i left new york and and tried to get better back home i went home and uh in north florida and, and it didn't feel like home and that's that's bad when you're dying and home doesn't feel like home um 
and that was where I wrote all the songs on the first record. I hadn't played guitar in 10 years. Um, I just, I'd been doing other stuff. I wrote songs from 18 to, to, to maybe 28. Uh, I wrote a lot of songs and they weren't very good. And they sounded like four shortwave radios playing all at once. And, and then I quit for 10 years. And during that time, I got my hand caught in an electric saw. So I couldn't really play guitar very well. Um, I had, my fingers were on my fretting hand were badly mangled. Um, so, you know, the things, things just, it was a, it was a 10 year spiral and it, there's nothing more depressing than a 10 year spiral. <laughs> you know, if it's a, if it's a 10 day spiral, you can pull it out of it, but 10 years is, you know, you just start to feel like there, there's no way out of this. And, you know, you start to feel that you've, you've reached the point of critical mass where there's just no matter what, what might happen, there's no way to redeem yourself from where you are. And uh, my, my heart goes out to all those people who, who feel that way right now. Uh, for me, um, I was sitting on the bottom and playing those songs that I wrote that appeared on the first record, just had no idea that anybody would ever hear them. And a friend came to visit me and cheer me up and he came up to the house and I was real shy about being a musician. And he knew that if he showed himself that I wouldn't play the songs that I was singing. So he just, he sat outside the window of this house I was in listening while I played five or six songs, perfect Jay Chase Tornadoes you know, a couple of other ones that appeared on that first record. And after I, I, I only knew five songs at that point cause I couldn't remember any of my old songs. And, uh, so after I'd played those five or six songs, he popped up and gave me this little cheerful applause. And like, it's the first kind thing had happened to me in a long, 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 long time. And I have to say that it just, it felt resonant when he was doing it. It felt like this is more than just a friend standing up and saying yes. This is uh, this is like a pivot moment in existence. And so he asked me to make him a tape um, of the songs, and he was headed out to Los Angeles to go to to graduate school at at AFI, which is American Film Institute. It's like the hardest film school to get into in America. NYU is one of the hardest, but the graduate level, this is the hardest AFI. And he just happened to give the tape to his girlfriend. She just happened to give it to her best friend. She just happened to be Daniel Anwa's manager and Joe Henry's wife and Madonna's sister. Um, yeah, it, 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 nothing, nothing. It, it's quite a story. And that ain't, that ain't one-tenth of the story. Uh, and she called me up and said, you should be a musician. Um, and you know, I was, I was, you know, thinking of the ways that I could, could, you know, get someone in the cab to shoot me so that it would look like an accident. So my family wouldn't feel bad about me dying. I mean, I was really like thinking about paying someone to shoot me. So this, this seemed, it all seemed unlikely. It all, it seemed unlikely that Joe Henry, Daniel Lanois, Madonna, this person who is their, uh, peer, would be talking to me. Uh, and for a long time, I was really suspicious about it. Um, and she just kept calling back saying, you know, I played these songs for my husband. He loves them. You know, Joe Henry. And he, at that point he had had six or seven albums out himself and he was well-respected in that world. And I've kind of looked him up and went, is he real? Is this real? Is I couldn't believe it was real. Um, so anyway, so out of that dark, dark, dark spiral, um, those songs came and they, you know, I realized years later that they were a cry for help. You know, I was, I was basically writing those songs saying, okay, universe, if you want me to stay, do something. 
And guess what? The universe did something. <laughs> you know, the odds, the odds, especially of, of me ended up with David Byrne, uh, because I had this long, complicated, weird stalker history with him. Um, the odds of, of, of that connection happening, each one of those connections, like me writing the songs and then my friend hearing them and then me making the tape and him playing it in the car for his girlfriend who says, oh, what's this? Let me play it for my friend. Each one of those is like a fragile little spider web and unable to bear weight. And yet it bore the weight of, you know, me wanting to stay on this earth or go. Um, and all of a sudden there I was shaking David Byrne's hand and signing a record deal. Um, and then a year later or two years later, I was playing to thousands of people opening for him all over the world. He couldn't have been nicer, man. He could have been nicer. I knew nothing about performing. Um, and he, and he let me open for him for a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. I hear people slamming him sometimes and that just makes me furious. Um, because he's got, he's got Asperger's. I don't know if you know that. And so he comes off sometimes as distant, but there's, there's no greater friend to music in the modern world than David Byrne. Um, yeah. So uh, I get, I get, I get mad when I hear people slamming him. All those things that you just mentioned, though, like as someone who's struggled with my own psychological health, all those things would be terrifying to me from driving the cab to, you know, singing the songs for somebody to, you know, going and performing them in front of people. So how did you how did you find the strength or the determination, I guess, to to do all those things? Um, well, it was kind of. <laughs> There's a couple angles to it. I didn't. I didn't want to be on stage. I, I desperately didn't want to be on stage. When they when they said, "Now you understand, if you sign this record deal, that you're going to have to perform," I went, "What?" <laughs> and they said, "Yeah, if you make a record, you have to perform." And I said, "Oh." And I went home and I I, I, I thought about it. I thought I really don't want to do that. So I called the guy that ran the label up and I said, "How many times am I going to have to perform? Like five times a year?" <laughs> and and he, he laughed like you laugh and he said probably you know 150 shows a year and i was like okay i'll talk to you later and i actually called the friend i gave the tape to because he's a he's a relatively sane person and he's a real sweet person and i said you know i don't i don't want to be a public person and he said this and i'll never forget it as long as i live he said let me ask you this do you think those songs you wrote would be helpful to anybody in the world and I said, no. And he, and he said, you're wrong. They will help people, but the only way they can help people is if they hear them. So you have to go be a performer. Can you do that? And I said, if, if I think it'll help people, yeah, I guess I could. So that was kind of like one of the driving uh, engines behind it was maybe this will help people. And God knows, as I've done shows over the years, the, the people that have come up and the stories that I have heard as a result of, of listening to a song of mine, I mean, a kid, 24 year old kid came up to me a couple years ago in England and said, I was just released from two years in an institution. And the only thing that kept me from killing myself was your music. <laughs> and you just kind of like, we cry, man. We just cry. We just burst into tears, both of us. <laughs> I thought I was played in Amsterdam. This is my favorite show story ever. So I played in Amsterdam where I have a really good following and I have a weird, complicated history with Amsterdam. I've been there a number of times in a number of incarnations, right? So 
Uh, I mean, I worked as a model there for a while and had a weird, long, bizarre relationship to the city because uh, I was having psychological problems even then. Um, but I went back to play this show there. And, and at the end of the night, you know, the people come up and they want to get their CD signed. You see, you got a signed CD. You know, Usually at the end of the line, the stragglers are the ones that want to say something. The first ones are just like, yeah, sign. The stragglers. So the first... The first lady, this beautiful, tall Dutch lady, about 50 years old, she said, uh, well, I just want to thank you for writing a perfect day to chase tornadoes. I have instructed in my will that it be played at my funeral. Well, that's that's powerful, man. That's <laughs> like the, the, she wants the last sounds of her presence to be a song I wrote, and you know, I just thanked her for the honor and, and hugged her, and we kind of had a little boohoo. And then the guy behind her was looking kind of funny, a little short guy, a little bald guy, and he was uh, he was looking kind of funny. And I said, "Do you need to get a CD signed?" He said, "No, I have a story, and it's about perfect chase tornadoes too." And I said, okay, let's hear it. And he said, well, I'm, I'm a tour manager and I, I drive bands around. And last year I hit a sheet of black ice and the van ended up wrapped around a tree and I was in a coma for two months. And the doctor said, we don't think he's ever going to come out. But my friend said, maybe music will bring him out. So they came and started in a hospital room, the, the, the intensive care unit. They started playing different records and they played a perfect day to chase tornadoes and he woke up <laughs> and and so i'm just kind of staring at him so he said thank you <laughs> you know and i was like okay i've never and this happened two people in a row third guy standing there young handsome guy and he's looking you know all bugged out and he said i have a story about a perfect day to chase tornadoes too it was my father's favorite song and as a child, I learned it because I'm I'm young. I was eight years old the first time I hunted. I learned it. I heard it. And so I learned to play it. When I learned to play guitar, it was the first song I learned. It's like, that's already a beautiful story. And then he said this. He said, and now when I go out on a date with a woman, if I play it for her, she sleeps with me. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute here. I've got the whole package here. I've got death. I've got rebirth and I've got procreation all in one five minute span. That happened. But sometimes I feel so goddamn trapped by everything that I know. And I wish it wasn't so. Cause the only thing that anyone should ever know is that today is a perfect day. And, so, and, so, and stuff like that happens to me. It happens from time to time. Just these weird windows of synchronicity open up. And that's what the novel that I just wrote is about. Um, it's, it's about an epoch of unparalleled synchronicity in my life. That includes the, 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 how David Byrne and I crossed paths and met. Um, and you know, a, a series of events over the course of about oh, 12 years, 13 years, 14 years that are just inexplicable. Um, so right now that's, that's my next big project is 
is I'm producing Ben's record and I'm producing a Venezuelan folk record for this amazing lady that I know and I'm producing my own record but I, I finished a novel it's all, already done I'm just looking for a publisher now um, and trying to figure out that world because I'm not any good at navigating it um, but you know who the X-Files writer is Vince Gilligan right the guy who wrote I sent it to him because he likes my music and he loved it so that's that's a good start you got some help from Breaking Bad so I would I would imagine it would it would make sense that uh... yeah, definitely well, that was him. He he went to film school with me. Oh, really? Yeah, it was just Vince. He was the guy that worked in the cage. And if you had voted on all the people in film school, the the one least likely to succeed, Vince would have been it. You know, he wore like a flannel shirt, and he was just a normal, ordinary-looking guy. Um, and he was a nice guy. You know, he worked down in the cage, and you would go and you would check out your cameras, and he would say, you know, here's your Airy S camera, and check to make sure that the, you know, that the shutter is working correctly and all that. And he was a tech guy. Um, and you know, 15 years later, a song of mine ended up, was it 15 years? No, it wasn't even 15 years. It was 10 years later. A song of mine ended up in Home Fries, um, which was a film that he wrote. Shiny stars, guiding stars, pointing away to the heaven of my heart. Guiding stars, pointing away to the... Um, and so he, he heard the song and liked it, and then found out that we went to film school at the same time and, and my my sister and his lawyer turned out to be friends and so we hit you know he started coming to my shows and and we started just talking about film school and he worked for miramax for a while and i worked for miramax for a while and um we had miramax stories to share and and he's just nice down-to-earth regular wonderful person and then you know they sent me this message saying oh your song is going to be in breaking bad and i didn't i don't watch tv so i didn't know what breaking bad was and so i said oh yeah great and it wasn't you know it wasn't much of a payday or anything it was a small payday so I didn't really think about it. And then when it came out, then the show aired, you know, the Heisenberg episode. When it aired, I came home from, I was in England and I played a show and, and I came home and there was 300 emails waiting for me. <laughs> it's like, well, what the fuck just happened? And then I realized, you know, each of them all said, I heard your song on Breaking Bad. I was like, well, this actually must be a pretty popular show, <laughs> this Breaking Bad thing. Um, and yeah, he just keeps being nice and helping me out. He's yeah, you know, I've been really incredibly fortunate to have all these powerful people just take a shine to me. You were talking about the the power of the live performance, and I guess hearing having someone, uh, you know, say that they liked your songs initially was was a huge thing for you. So is that a a big part of like do you do you live off that uh, external feedback from people at live shows? Um, no, I hate I hate live shows. I, I've never, I, I, here's, here's, I, I always think about what my friends said, you know, this is a ministry. So I go into it thinking, okay, I'm going to get up here. And even though I don't like being on stage and I don't like being looked at, if one person in this show gets helped, then it's worth it. Um, and that's, that's, and you know, then, then there's a secondary thing is I have to feed my family. Uh, so, so those, those are my two guiding principles when I get up there and, you know, once I get up there and I start talking, you know, anything can happen. I just kind of absent my mind and, and, you know, things happen. Um, but, uh, if someone told me tomorrow, you can never perform again, I, I, I would not be hangdog about it. I, I'd, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Um, 
you know, just so long as I can keep feeding my family, that's fine. Um, so there's a lot of people that do feed off of it. Like my daughter's a, a singer performer and she loves being on stage, just loves it. Just, you know, the energy up there. And, you know, like I, I, I deal with all of these great musicians that just, when they get on stage, it's like they're, they're, they're vivified, you know, like they're, they get, like they're, someone plugs them in. I, you know, with me, it's not like that. It's, it's like, um, I'm doing this this sacred task sort of um, that that I'm like I'm like Harrison Ford, you know, driving driving the the the, the Empire people or whatever they were to their their planet. I like, yeah, I don't really want to be here, but I'll take you. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of my my approach to live live music. Um, and I'm not a very good singer, and I'm not a very good songwriter, so that kind of contributes to my. I, I it's not singer, but I mean a guitar player. I, I write okay songs. But I, I don't sing well, and I don't sing naturally. Like Susie, man, she can sing. You know that that she was just born to sing. I I don't. I'm not. I'm not built that way. I didn't. I a note didn't escape my lips until I was 18, and I started writing songs. And then the, now I played one for my sister, and her her first comment to me was, "Oh, you're tone deaf too." <laughs> not even. That's a bad song. It's like first thing. Oh, you're tone deaf too. Uh, so yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I hear of so many good singers, and and it's just getting worse and worse. Like the opening acts are getting so much better than me. Um, the only thing I got going for me is that I'm kind of crazy, and I I can, I can, I can run a show differently than other people run it. You know, um, it's not like a conventional show when you show up at one of my shows. I talk a lot, you know, and and just kind of let whatever spirits in the air kind of move me wherever it'll go. And you had kind of, um, for the past number of years, you, you kind of have cut back a lot on your touring, right? Like you wanted to spend more time with your family and, uh, I guess not, not go through the rigors anymore. So, well, it's, you know, touring, yeah, people don't understand about, uh, grassroots level musician touring. I don't make enough money to have a tour manager. I don't have enough money to have a driver. I don't have enough money to have a guitar tech. Uh, I don't have enough money to have a merch salesman. So I do all those jobs. Um, and so at the end of a tour, I've lost 20 pounds and I'm a physical wreck. Um, it's, it's grueling. And the only way to make it work is, you know, try to book a show every day. So if you do 21 shows in 24 days in the UK and Northern Europe, by the end of it, you're already, you're ready to be put in a hospital bed. Um, so, and I'm 64, so that's, that's just, you know, it's, it's hard. I looked at, there was a, some interviews from Holland for my last big tour and um, it was the end of the tour that they did the interviews. And I looked like uh, an emaciated skeleton um, because I just it's it's so stressful. It, you know, think about this. You're in a car and you're in a city and you have to be in another city 300 miles away. If you lose your guitar, if, uh, you know, you, you leave the merchandise behind by accident, which I've done before. If you have a, 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 a car breakdown and the car doesn't make it. And you can't make it to the show. Then what do you do to get the car repair? It takes three days, and you've got shows booked all those days. What do you do? It's incredibly stressful. And then you show up at say four o'clock. You do a sound check with a person you don't know if they know sound or not sound. And then and then you do you know you grab a quick dinner. You do your show. It's my shows are usually two hours long at least. And at the end of the night, then I try to talk to everybody afterwards because it's it's not it's not just entertainment. It's a ministry, like I said. So I try to talk to people who have waited for years to come up and tell me their story. And that's another two hours. So, 
you know, it's, I'm, I'm 12, 14 hours into the day when I get to the hotel room and have to unload all the gear into the hotel room because you can't leave it in the car. And a lot of times that means schlepping 300, 400 pounds of gear up a couple flights of stairs and then putting it in a room and then collapsing into a bed and then trying to get up the next morning and do the same thing over and over again, Groundhog Day style. So I don't tour that much. Um, and part of it is definitely that I need my family to not think of me as a voice on the phone. Uh, but part of it is, is just that um, it's, it's, it's fairly grueling and it's difficult, especially in America. Um, you know, I did the last tour I did with a band. I took a three piece band out, just me and two other players. I came home after a month and I was $3,000 in debt. So you can't really justify anything other than just going out solo. And the road is, is clogged with, you know, you know, grassroots musicians like me doing the same thing. Um, it's hard to get a venue to return your call. You know, even if I've had songs in Breaking Bad and, and El Camino and all that, venues don't return my calls. And I, I play I play Philadelphia uh, on that same tour that, that I lost $3,000. Philadelphia on a Saturday night. And I've always had a good following there. Twelve people came. And we got paid $32 for that night. And my overhead for the day for my band was $900. You know, hotel rooms, per diem, band pay, gas, all those things, about eight, $900 a day. <laughs> so so uh, touring is not an attractive proposition. If there are tours where like it's, it's curated and, and you know you're going to have audiences, that's a different proposition. Um, but those are very few and far between, you know, very few and far between. Uh, mostly it's in Europe. As Hal Gilb says, you know, it's great. It's great that Europe exists, but the commute is hell. <laughs> Cause he, he's, he's a huge star over there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his music, but he's, he, he's a legend, man. He's, he is the next level. Um, but yeah, you know, that's one of his jokes was, yeah, you know, this is this is kind of my job here coming coming here and playing and i just have to say man the commute is killing me because <laughs> you fly you know 12 14 hours and and me i've I've got the uh, sleep disorder so oftentimes when i get to europe i don't sleep for 48 hours and then i have to do a show <laughs> i fell asleep once i fell asleep on stage while singing a song and it was a serious song, and the English audience were so kind and so supportive that they thought that I was just deeply moved by the lyrics. They did not know I was asleep. And I opened my eyes, and I looked, and I thought, I hope this is a dream, because there's a bunch of people in the middle of my dream, and they're staring at me. And then I looked at the chord. I was making, I went, oh shit, that's the chord that goes to Stillwaters. I'm on stage. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> and I was playing with two other guys and they were just all kind of staring at me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> anyway, so some people are made for the road, like Dave Dondero. Dave, Dave, he's thrilled to play 300 shows a year. He wishes there were more days in the year to play. If, if I play 100 shows in a year, that's a strange year. You know, I probably more like 40, 50, that's the most I'll play in a year. I, th I think a lot of people would find that surprising that a guy who's put out as many records as you have, you've had record labels and mo songs and movies and, and TV and stuff like that is still 
having such a hard time of it? How, like, what do you, what do you tell your daughter who, who loves music and wants to do it? <laughs> like, do you tell her not to or? Yeah. Well, I, t- I told her growing up, you know, Walmart, honey. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, that little store down on the corner where we go and people buy cigarettes and Slim Jims, I'm that store. <laughs> I'm not Walmart. And so, you know, Britney Spears and all those people, this is back when Britney Spears was popular. Um, they're, they're Walmart. And I'm that little store uh, with the, with the stale crackers on the, on the counter, um, that you, that you stop and you buy the, the moon pie that has the, uh, out of date, uh, tag on it and the thirsty, you know, the, the energy drink. <laughs> that's, that's me. There's a little gas pump outside me, uh, where, where people get a little bit of gas and they keep going till they get to a big store. Um, and you know, the, I've talked to my older daughter about it because she had a record deal um, and nothing much came of it. And I told her, you know, she may be, unless, unless she desperately wants to be on stage, she may be better off using some of her other skills because the people that are doing it right now are the people that like Hal Gelps told me once when he was talking about David Eugene Edwards, he said that that man doesn't do it because he wants to do it. He does it because he has to do it. It's just in his DNA that he has to let loose passion with a musical instrument in his hand. And if, it, if it's not in your blood like that, then you may want to go find another route of uh, self-expression. Because it can be very heartbreaking. Now, there's a kid out right now, Matthew Fowler. Do you know him? He's great. And he's been riding in a car for five years. You know, not many people could do that. Sooner or later, someone would just give up and say, fuck it, I'm not going to do this anymore. But he, he does it because he has to do it. And I'm so happy for him. He's a really sweet person. And the singers that he works with, the Prado sisters, they're great as well. Um, and they are, they're doing it for the right reasons. So, you know, if you're, if you're thinking, oh, well, I'll just do this and, and I'll get a record deal and, and then uh, I'll have a budget for clothing and all that kind of stuff. That's 1992. Um, Right now, there's a thousand hungry wolves, at the, uh, you know, barking at one door, and and you have to fight your way through the wolves to get through it. Um, and it's like like I said, there's a lot of lot of sweet souls that uh, just don't don't have the, the the right makeup to fight their way through the crowd to let people hear their gifts, and that's a shame. Like I say, there needs to be some kind of curated site of of unknown artists, um, like. That, that that you can go and you can listen to it where you know you divide it up into categories whether it's rap or uh there's there's a rap artist here in town who's great that nobody's ever heard of um that you know rap or or americana or indie pop um you know there are exemplars in all of those who no one's ever heard of and that seems a shame it seems a shame i'm a, i'm you know i'm an inch away from that i would have been that myself had had it not been for a series of bizarre twists and turns and a lot of generosity from, from famous people like David Byrne. So how does that, how, how does that all, all that uncertainty and, and all that, uh, all, all that struggle, uh, feed into the uh, guy with, uh, with mental health issues over the years? Has it, has, has that always kind of worn on you? Um, does that kind of compound the, the, the mental health issues or, um, and it's kind of the opposite. Um, and when I had kids, um, I suddenly had a reason to live beyond me. Um, and, and that was uh, a real blessing. Um, 
I wasn't planning on having kids. It was a complicated situation. But when I took a look at my older daughter, who's right now about 50 feet away from me and with her, her red Mercedes parked right over there. Um, and she's, she's, she's doing her thing. She's quite an entrepreneur and interesting person. Um, when, when, as soon as I had a, an external locus and, and for my actions, um, a lot, a lot improved in my mind. And it's not the, the same for everybody. Some people fall to pieces because the pressure drives them insane you know, with kids, but kids, kids saved me. Um, and I keep a, a straight, steady helm, um, because I know that they need me. Um, and it's interesting because uh, the, the oldest one's 22, youngest one's just turned 15. And I've, I've actually thought, what's going to happen to me as a person when I, don't, I no longer have kids, uh, sort of as the outrigger on my wobbly canoe? Um, they're they're going to they're gonna individuate and go off on their own and do their thing. And, and will the canoe go back to the wobbles pre-kid? Uh, I, was, I was a mess before that. Um, I don't know. Um, one of the things that I have got, I've got going for me is that no matter what, I'm always trying to get better. Um, and that's, you know, a a lot of the problems that I see with, with the music industry is there's a lot of people enablers encouraging artists to not get better because not getting better sells records. You know, go, go have that heroin addiction and then come out of it so that you can make that great comeback record. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, all I need to do really at this point is is to uh, commit murder and then get out of prison 18 years from now, and then I can make a comeback record, you know? It's, it's like, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm rambling at this point. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, my, my kids saved my life, and um, I'm, I let them know it on a regular basis. And uh, it's embarrassing for the younger one who's 15 and doesn't want to know any such thing, but the older one is very touched by it. She, she's, she's, she's had her own hard life. Uh, and she knows what, what I'm talking about when I, when I, when I tell her what she means to me. So kids, you know, like I, for, when I first had my first kid, I would, I would just tell everybody, man, you should just have kids. That will make you feel better. Not knowing that people are different. Some people it will make them feel worse. <laughs> yeah. But it sure saved the day for me. Um, it sure saved the day for me and, and, and they're, they're cool kids. I, I'm thoroughly fascinated in the arc of their existence and where they're headed. Uh, the younger one is probably the most talented musician in the family. Um, and the older one has a record deal and I've, you know, put out how many of records I've done, eight records, 10 records. I don't know how many. Um, yeah, the youngest one is, whew. and she grew up. See, when I was growing up, I, people weren't playing music for me and saying, what do you think of this? And what do you think about them putting a cello there? And what do you think about putting a French horn there? And why did the drummer make that choice? When she was seven, she was singing counterpoint to Gregorian chants that she'd never heard. She just knew where the notes were going. Um, so she's just one of those special people. And I, 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 I can look forward to I guess, seeing where she goes. So, Jim, as someone who's not really performing that much, how has the pandemic affected you? See, I was I was married to a woman who was a pandemic maniac. She just kept saying, "Oh, pandemic, pandemic, pandemic." She was actually looking forward to the pandemic, and uh, so that was 15 years ago. And so uh, I had an idea that a pandemic might happen because she was a very smart lady, um, crazy but smart. And um, so anyway, 
when the pandemic came, I was like, oh, yeah, well, that's what she was talking about. And so I knew all the things, that the, the protocols that she was talking about would happen. She was, first, she was talking about the bird flu, and then the banking collapse, and then the swine flu, and then the bird flu. That was, that was our marriage there. there <laughs> five years together. Um, so anyway, uh, when you have mental health problems, you're, you're, the odds of you seeking out a, a person with mental health problems as a partner are very high. And that's not good. And that's especially bad for kids. So um, anyway, when the pandemic hit, um, I sort of knew what to do. And my life didn't change because I'm a hermit. I, I, I don't eat out. I don't, I don't go to parties. I don't uh, think, oh, I should call so-and-so and we should get together for a cup of coffee. I don't think that. I just sit in my room and write. And I write songs and I write stories. And I just kept doing it. That's why I got the novel finished. So it was like, thank you, pandemic. Um, I, I really needed to get that novel out of the way because I had it in my mind for 10 years and I won literary prizes and all kinds of stuff. And everyone was telling me, write the, the novel. And, and so, you know, for, for me, um, it didn't change my life at all. Um, I, you know, I know that for a lot of people it was uh, catastrophic and I, you know, someone posted on Facebook, what's, what's the biggest death of a celebrity that ever affected you and i didn't have to think a second about it It was just john John prine you know john prine going like he went um so for some people this was the most devastating thing to ever happen to him um i live in kind of an insular world and and so it didn't it didn't really reach me much um you know i just had to learn how to wear a mask in public and i didn't didn't go flea markets for a while which is that's my that's my thing that i like doing best you know i get up on saturday sunday morning go to flea markets i didn't do that for about six months um and then you know when the numbers started dropping i'd go and i'd wear a mask and um so nothing much changed um and now that it's over it's like i sort of have this feeling like okay maybe i need to go and socialize now which i've never ever in my life had so it's kind of a nice feeling at the end of it. It's like, uh, you know, that's the silver lining on a very, very big, dark cloud. So uh, so, so, what's still to come? I know you, you just put out a great record last year, Misfits Jubilee, and you're, you're already started on another one? Well, yeah. Um, I've got this, this, you know, it's like LaGuardia on a, on, a, on a foggy day. I've got like 15 planes circling, waiting to land. Um, wow, that just flew by. Um, so yeah, so I have the a bluegrass, hardcore bluegrass record, um, because I have a lot of personalities, uh, musical personalities. When, when Lwakabop signed me, I, I gave him about 80 songs to, to choose from. And, uh, they told the producer, <laughs> they called him up and said, don't tell him we said this. Okay. Just between you and me, the producer who's a friend of mine, um, we want to limit him to just three personalities. And so he immediately hung up the phone and said, they want to limit you to three personalities. And I said, oh, good, let's name them. <laughs> so, so we named them the three personalities that appeared on Wrong Eye Jesus. One was Ragamuffin Poet, one was Sinister Minister, and I can't remember the third one at this point. Um, but those were the three personalities. I have a lot of personalities that they just come jumping out of me. When I'm at the flea market, bluegrass songwriter is in my mind for some reason and i had all these flea market songs that i'd written while i was walking around there and um there's a great band here they played with me on uh, waffles triangles and jesus they're called hog-eyed man um and they play old time traditional jigs 
um, they are like purists of, of a fairly, fairly high order. And so I wrote all these songs with them in mind, like how in the world can I get the bluegrass flea market songs out using their skills? So yeah, we just recorded, uh, we recorded eight songs, I think eight, nine, um, over the course of two days. And that's very, very, very atypical of my approach. My approach is, you know, it takes me a year to make a record. So, so to get the, the bulk of, of eight or nine songs in two days is bizarre. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to do my thing on them and, you know, work on them and tweak them and make them weird and cinematic. But, uh, it was a pretty cool experience with, with people who I, I, I love and adore, you know, brother, brother kind of people and sister kind of people. Um, so that's, that's coming. Uh, probably about the time that I release the book, so probably next early next summer, um, that'll that'll be showing up um, somewhere somehow if I'm if I'm lucky. Hope, hopefully, you prioritize getting that book out there because I've heard you talk about it enough. Now I want to read it. Yeah, I just got to navigate the maze of publishing. It's it's a lot like the music business, and I'm very wary because of that. Yeah, well, I mean, you've you've done pretty well at the crowdfunding for the records a couple of times, so if you have to, yeah. you know just uh... that's that's kind of where i'm headed right now yeah but but hey just just so you know crowdfunding for records that's like a full-time minimum wage job the the amount of work i put into well, that yeah you put a lot into it with your custom artwork and all kinds of things yeah and shipping just packing all the stuff up and shipping it all over creation just just nearly killed me it was like three months of of 50 hour weeks so it's complicated. So I gotta figure out a way to crowdfund without killing myself. I highly recommend following Jim White on social media where he shares a lot of great stories and photos. Check out his website at jimwhitemusic.net and you can buy his amazing albums at jimwhite.bandcamp.com. I've got a bunch of great stuff left over from this interview that I'll share on my August 1st episode of my other show, Tell the Band to Go Home. You can find that one at tellthebandtogohome.com. I always love to hear from you. If you have a question or thoughts about this show, Please drop me a line anytime at flywithyourshadow at gmail.com and visit the website at flywithyourshadow.com for more information about the music used in this episode, other episodes, mental health resources, and much more. As always, this show is completely ad-free and costs you absolutely nothing. If you feel like helping out, please consider telling someone about the show to help spread the word. Getting the show into new ears is one of the most difficult parts, but your personal recommendation to a friend or colleague would really help, and it would be greatly appreciated. I'm Jeff Robson, and I sincerely hope that you'll join me again on the next episode of Fly With Your Shadow. <laughs>